so this week joining me on Ted's Open Mic, I'm delighted to say that um, former Dublin Grey and Paddy One Kickings legend Paddy Christie. Um, Paddy, thanks very much for joining me this week. I no really appreciate it. Um, as, as many people are aware, Paddy has been a mentor, not just for me, but for many lads from Manny Moon for um, many, many a year. Um, from we were about, for me, probably since we were six or seven, all the way through, even even to now, you're still a mentor for me, Paddy. And um, I'd always look up to and listen to whatever you have to say. So, um, for that, I want to say thank you for all the work that you've done for me for over the years. Uh, I can't imagine uh, it's been easy along the way, should I say. <laughs> Um, but Paddy, well, it's before, been a pleasure in fairness. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Many others might, might say differently, but uh, we'll leave that for a different day. Um, so Paddy, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back probably to when I was obviously starting out with Ballymun with that under 10s team that, that you started with, and you were obviously playing with Dublin at the time as well. So, question for there is how did you fit in the time and to put up a what, 15 lunatics coming up in Valley One. Yeah. Um, I suppose at this stage, the, the story is fairly common around the place that people have heard loads of it. I mean, my brother, you'd know my brother Eddie fairly well. So I, I brought him up and um, he he would have been playing under 10, whatever. And in fact, he would have been playing under 10 the year before I brought him up for us because Graham Robertson, who be Ian Robertson's brother, was involved. My father, uh, my stepfather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ironic, actually, just as I'm thinking of that there now. And Collie Farrell, another legend of, of Ballymun Kickings, they were looking after the team. Then I said, I was watching some of the old matches and then I went up the following year and uh, got involved but in Poventry Park doing the training and the matches and that sort of thing. But uh, I suppose yeah, when I look back on it, I've, I've I've seen I've talked to Davy Bourne a number of times since, and it's always surprised him how um, how how you were able to do it. And I suppose at the time I didn't know any different. Like <clears throat> my explanation for it was we trained um, <clears throat> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So Monday and Wednesday was was a pitch session. Tuesday and Thursday was gym. Saturday morning was a pitch session. And Sunday was a match. They were the olden days where there wasn't many floodlit pitches or any of that sort of thing. So you played on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And uh, that left Friday being off. So Fridays is when we trained then, obviously. Um, and um, so that it all it all started from there. But that was that was how that happened. I mean, it was a Friday evening. And it sort of worked out afterwards well, because <clears throat> at the time, there was a lot of competition to get you guys playing because there was a lot of soccer being played a lot of a lot of small soccer teams and were springing up all over the place and um while they would the lads wouldn't play with them for long they would they might play with them for a year or six months and they wouldn't be playing gaelic football so it was a challenge to try and keep fellas playing at the time it's, it's not it hasn't got it hadn't got the same profile it does now um i suppose you know it's just one of those things like Ballymun Kickham's reaching all Ireland club final and lads in the Dublin team with all their medals and all has probably put it really on the map. Um, but at the time, it was hard to get some of you guys to play regularly because there was a lot of soccer on. And the one thing about the soccer was, was that it wasn't on a Friday. They never trained on Fridays. They never played matches on Fridays. And it was one my one day off. So it just sort of worked out well. 
started training on a Friday after school and um yeah, get I mean bring up Papadry Park and um, I think we had a cup, I think we might have had two footballs at the start. Um, <laughs> so it was a very low um low budget operation. I think we did scald these set of jerseys, they were really, really rotten. I remember them in a bag and they were the they were what you call the soccer jerseys at the time. They were light material, no crest, um, the numbers that have fallen off the back and um that's I think I still have one of them jerseys at home somewhere hiding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you that'd be like a vintage car in another 20 years, that'd be worth seven or eight grand, maybe on eBay or something like that. But uh, no, there, it was it was a tough time. It was, it was when I look back on it, it was everything that you would not want to happen at juvenile level in a, in a GA club or in your own club or in any club, like. You know, poor organisation, poor equipment, um, poor facilities, really. Poppetry Park was grand, but you didn't have dress rooms. It was lashing rain, uh, no floodlights, um, little or no parental involvement because people were working on a Friday afternoon. Like, and parents, in fairness, they probably weren't going to really hang around anyway. And they were delighted to get a break for an hour and have their kid going off playing football. So, you know, it's just one of those things when I look back at it, made a lot of mistakes that time. And then the second time around with the other team, I said, I, I got me ass in the gear a bit and I knew what I was doing. But I mean, the first time around, when I think of it, you guys probably have fond memories overall. And of course you would have, because we had we, we, we did have a great time, but looking back on it, it was very, very archaic. It was old school. I mean, the footballs, like two, two footballs to do a proper session with 15 or 16 kids is disastrous. And, um, I've mentioned it in that documentary, like it did my head in to see fellas like yourselves coming up with no proper gear and no come up those Bermuda shirts. Always stopping the stuff for the packets. I could put up with the meanies. I could put up with the meanies. Sometimes they went further and they got the mega meanies, which meant you were really upmarket, like you were posh if you had the mega meanies. But um it was the it was the shorts and not even like having red socks or anything like that, like multicolored socks. Bermuda shorts or soccer shorts or whatever, all that sort of thing. No, tr- I mean, tracksuits were like considered, if somebody had a tracksuit in Body Kickings, you were considered like a demigod. I mean, you were you were someone really special if you had it. I mean, they just didn't have tracksuits. They didn't, the club wasn't organized in that way. They weren't, yeah. they were a small group of committed people who, when I got involved, they meant well, but didn't have the wherewithal, didn't have the knowledge to to get this thing off the ground, to really get up and running. And then um, obviously people came in after a few years and started to change the thing around. And Declan Small was key to that. Like he he came in and got the nursery going in down and down and near the Autobahn there, down in Wadley Green. Mm. And uh, that sort of stuff changed things because ultimately what should have happened with you guys was you should have done that under five, under six, under seven. Then I take you under eight, or under nine, under 10. And you've done a few years. You're sort of set up. Uh, you're probably wearing the club colours at that stage. You have a bag. Um, you feel part of the club. Whereas instead, you know, this this was completely a, the wrong way. Like it was the, the wrong way of doing it. Getting the fellas at under 10. But at that stage... It's, it's a bit too late and um, the structures aren't there. It was well, just, I think everyone would beg to differ that you've done a decent job, but as Paddy considered. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was, 
it was it was an okay job. But the only thing about it is, is that I was naive at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, flying by the seat of my pants and um, flying by the seat of your pants often precedes crashing by the seat of your pants. You know, so um, you had a lot of speed bumps along the way. Um, go back to that second team all the time, and I know it always annoys you guys because the guys in the first team always complained with the fellas in the second team and the fellas in the second team complained with the fellas in the first team but I knew what I was doing the second time around and I wouldn't call it clockwork but there was a lot of things that were vastly improved and if you guys could have been parachuted into the second team you would have got a very different I knew what I was doing at that stage and yeah. I, 10 years on I was teaching for four, four five six years at that stage and it was much better then the first time around, the first time around was was messy, but we still managed to get there. And by the time we got to 16s or minor, we had a, a good grasp on things and we had a good bond. And to be honest yeah. with you, you know, look at all the fellas who stayed playing and won senior championships and all. So there's no guarantee. I think that's a question that I want to ask you. What do you think, like when we, when we look back, or even when I look back to under 10 with the team that we had, and I think actually Davey sent me a picture there the other day of, of a, an under 12 shield win out in yeah. Sylvester's. Yeah, and like just half of them, half of the lads are still playing football, like which is incredible for for a team from under ten and still playing net to this day. Like, um, when you think about other clubs or lads that have played back then and they haven't been able to keep the players, what do you think it was for us? Do you think it was the fact? I think for me personally, I think it was the fact that you said with us all the way through. Hmm. Um. Some of it was to do with the fact that you that. In some, not on purpose, some accidental way, a bond grew between you guys, and that's what really kept you together. I mean, yeah, I was playing with Dublin, and I was sort of a probably at that stage a household name, whatever, and that's grand, and that will work for a few weeks. Like, I mean, it'd be like Ted if you got, I don't know, say, take one of the, the top players. Let's let's be let's be biased and pick a body one fella. Say you got James McCarthy and James McCarthy sadly got injured and decided he couldn't play football anymore and he became a manager. If you threw him in with St. Sylvester's or Nave Marnog or I don't know, somebody in the South like Thomas Davis, I'm sure for the first few weeks that that would give them a big boost. And oh geez, James McCarthy is with us and he's training and sort of thing. But that wears off very quickly because mm-hmm. That's a name, and ultimately, it's what underneath what's underneath that matters. And like, and this is not by the way. This is just using James as an example of a very high-profile player who was, you know, everyone would admire and all sort of thing. Ultimately, you have to have um, other things in place to try and keep a team going. And I accidentally stumbled upon things as I went along. I made loads of mistakes, and then. As I said, with the second team, I managed to avoid a, a number of them. Not all of them, but a number of them. But the, the thing, the key was that I did them with both teams, I think, or I was involved in doing with both teams was creating a bond in the players. And that was yeah, more difficult. I, I, I completely agree, but it wasn't just a bond with the players. It was the bond with you as well. Like, you were, for most of us, like that fa- father figure for us. And particularly growing up, like as people would say, a disadvantaged area. But I think for us, we would always say it was never disadvantaged. Like we were, we loved growing up in Ballymun, and I think growing up, we played to our strengths when we had lads teams from the south side or anywhere, or any, as we called the the poshies coming over to Ballymun. And but I think we we thrived on that. Like, and I think with you and for me in particular, like for me, I didn't have that father figure growing up. So for me, to ha- I had you as a mentor there, and I was able to talk, communicate with you about certain things, whether 
whether it was racially abused during games or when we had rows or there was something, there was always something else going on. And I think obviously for people going up from anyone, there was always that extra, there was always something else that could have, we could have went a different way. Like, mm. uh, I think that because, and every year, like we knew that you were coming back, how you put up with us for so long, I have no idea and why you kept coming back. I, do you think it was the fact that we never won at and grown up? Like, I think we won under 10, under 11, under 12. <laughs> And then from like and under thirteen, and then from fourteen up to twenty ones, we didn't win anything. And do you think that was that that rootless streak that you just the, the um, selfishness to come back that you want to win something like? <laughs> well, I wasn't winning anything. Sadly, I was just involved in organising the team to win something. But personally speaking, the pleasure I got in it was that you guys would win. I suppose the manager gets nothing really and doesn't want anything for it. I suppose, but. Um, yeah, that was a part of it. I suppose if you won loads of things, but then again, the second team that I had won, won everything, and I continued on, on with them to the same vein until their last year, 21. So that's not really, I suppose, it definitely helped that we didn't win too much. And I think you'd agree with that. If you mm. look back on it, it was very frustrating at the time, but it gave us a massive incentive to keep on going. And I suppose it was a good life skill. I mean, we, we referenced that program probably 10 times during this episode, but like. It might have been you or Davey mentioned it like in the program that um, the idea of not collapsing when things go wrong, the idea of coming back over and over again, because like ultimately that's what happens with teams and with individuals. History is littered with people who were considered, you know, very successful people, very successful teams. And when you look back through the history, they had disasters. They were yeah. a total mess. They went through very bad patches. They nearly gave up. They did give up, but then they came back. It doesn't. It's not a, a linear graph that just goes up as you go along. It, it it doesn't work like that. So I suppose that was a good life experience, or life lesson for you guys to see that you weren't that far away that you were demoralised. You were getting yeah. the finals, the semi-finals. You were top three in the league. It was just one particular team, St. Bridges, who used to always beat you because they were physically bigger than you. But the funny thing about it was. The way to combat that, that we eventually got to grips with, was we obviously got stronger. We weren't very big. Uh, and ironically, you were one of the biggest fellas and you were two years younger than everyone else. So we, like you had the genes in you, you had the, you had the athleticism in you anyway, um, from, from your dad or whatever. So we had a problem size wise. We sort of sorted that out at 16th level. Niall Miner came in and did a, a lot of gym stuff with you guys. And uh, I, remember bringing, I remember bringing you to Total Fitness as well and getting you sort of into the whole gym thing. We were doing the spinning classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? And um, that was one thing we did. And then obviously the other thing was when you're physically small and you're constantly being blocked down because they're physically bigger, so it's hard to get by them. You have to be able to switch onto your weak foot. So we would have done a lot of stuff on weak foot. Now, it didn't make any difference in those games because ultimately they were just too big and too fast and too strong. But by learning about your weak foot and by developing it, it would have benefited you long-term in the senior championship or under-21 championship or whatever. It was a benefit. There would have been no justification for anyone saying Bridget's working on the weak foot because they just kept on beating everyone. Yeah. Therefore, psychologically for them, I'm sure when their coach or manager said to them, we're going to work on the weak foot, they'd say, why bother? Because we're already the best. But I suppose for you guys, being second or third best is, an, is a good place to be from, a, I suppose, a future point of view because being last probably puts a lot of people off and being top has its own perils associated with. So second or third was good. And that certainly helped. Um, the other thing was, like I said, 
as I went along, particularly getting the 15, 16th minor, I got good people involved in the management. Um, that wasn't, by the way, saying uh, disrespecting anyone who was involved early on, just that it was sporadic enough. There were different people coming out and giving a hand and get there for a year or there for six months and then gone again. And well, I suppose I realized when I got to 16 and that was coinciding with my teaching career. Like I started teaching in 2001 and you guys would have been under what you would have been under 14 at the time or something like that, under 14, 15. Yeah. So I, right, so I was still, I was only 12 at that stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I know we, we all know that, but like realistically, you, you looked like the same as the rest of them. Like you were the same size because you started to grow around 14. So you, you, you were a sort of a tank of a fella. I remember my dad was going on about you all the time saying, oh, that fella is powerful, man. That sort of thing. And I used to say to him, he's two years younger than everyone else, but he couldn't believe that. I always remember the handshake your dad would give us and the slap in the back and you'd be yeah. left the handprint. And just... yeah, 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 it was, this, it was the, the school of hard knocks. That's what it was. But um, no, like that was a big thing that, um, that was a big thing that we got good people around you, fellas, you know, and it, I'm sure you remember like the likes of Jerry Dolan, um, all yeah. father, like, not even as a tactician or any that sort of fancy stuff, just coming in and he was giving a hand with the water and he was, you know, saying a few words here or there. And the lads, sort of, he was a funny sort of fella and he, a real cabin man. And uh, he'd be, he'd, be, he'd throw in the odd uh, F word and that sort of thing here. <laughs> there. But I mean, we then you had Phil O'D getting involved as well. Um, all these sort of fellas, they were good people and good characters and that helped an awful lot. But again, we had they had the consistency because they stuck around. Like, do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? When you have that consistency with, with people, when you have that continue con uh, continuity with with people that are constantly there, you know, you can trust them. And obviously, that we had that communication where, and I think this is one one of the good sides about the way you managed was you never really shouted at us unless there was a proper reason. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you I can't remember too far too remember too much about you shouting at us at any stage like do you know what I mean unless until we got to the later stages when we were 21s and then we were messing about with like rather where we were acting the bollocks or something like that do you know what I mean but I think growing up it was the way it was the cool calm collected like uh, management store that you had and I think a lot of lads reciprocated that when, when it came to playing matches so if you think about growing up we didn't have that many sending offs there was one or two wild cases that we had like but mm. um there was very few lads and we weren't a dirty team. Like as, as much as people make it out to be this Ballymun's like dollar sagging's that we got throughout the years, like scumbags, knackers, but we never really had that many sending offs growing up. Like no, but that the thing with that, Ted, there's two parts to that. Firstly, obviously you're trying to give an example to players, and if you're on the sideline roaring abuse and using foul language all the time, you can't really pull up any of the players for doing that. So that's the, that was the first, that was an obvious thing from a teaching side of things. But the second thing is on a more deeper level, like if and you'll find this yourself if, if please God you take out your own kids on a team someday and that sort of thing, and you're, you're you might you might get involved with coach. And if you do, you'll find that you it'll dawn on you after a wild head, and, and, and it does with most people if they have a brain that what you're shouting on the sideline doesn't really have any effect on the pitch, and no one's listening to you, you know. Um, and when that dawns on you. It can be sober an experience for some people. Like they don't, they realize that actually nobody was listening all along. Like I mean, that's a bit extreme, of course. You know, some matches if there's nobody there and it's quiet and you're you're letting the odd shout out of you, they're, they're 
probably hearing that, but like you think of a big match, Parnell Park Championship mm. final, ten or twelve thousand people. You can't not, hear anything. Can't hear anything. You play in Crow Park in front of eighty-two thousand people. You won't hear anything. Like I mean, you can't even hear the players. I remember the club final, like, and I think I remember one stage, like, I think that was one of the biggest crowds they got for the club final when we got there, like 40,000, 40, 40 odd thousand or something. And I just remember at one stage, I think Rocky was talking to me and I couldn't hear him, he's about five yards away, like, yeah, that's that's the thing about it, like, it's it's not really any major benefit I would have felt, and that thankfully was one of the things that dawned on me early on, and I suppose again, coming back to the first point, you just if you want to develop good standards in the team if you want i mean there, were, there, there was a there, there might have been small issues with discipline and behavior and um sort of general carry on and the thing about it was you have to you have to show, you have to be an, be a good example you have to show people how you want them to behave by doing it yourself and that's a classic mistake that people make all the time. They don't lead by example. So I suppose you have to just start that on the sideline. And even if you're frustrated, you have to bite your tongue. Because like there was loads of times where I was thinking in my mind, you know, a lot of bad things and what I what I would do if I could get if I could get my hands around somebody's neck in that team, whether it was you or Philly McMahon or Davy Bourne. But you just have to button it. You're allowed to think bad thoughts, but you just can't say them. Um, and um, that's a good thing for you to see because you would you demand high standards of the, of the player, so you must stick to that yourself. And then every so often, when you do let fly and you you, you lose the rag, you, you guys would notice because it doesn't happen too often. Yeah. Imagine if you're continually, it's like the teacher in the classroom who's continually blowing the whistle or ringing the bell or shouting. After a while, that's just white noise. You know, that's just normal. So nobody's nobody's listened to that. Like you know, it, it has to be rare. For it to happen, so that it has a major effect, and then people will listen. So there was t- there was a bit of thought put into that, but uh, I, that dawned on me fairly early on before I even started teaching. I realised that um, that that I thought that was best. Sorry, not to say that's the best way. That was the best way for this group and from yeah. that some there are other people who do get a lot of get a lot out of their players by roaring and shouting and banging the tables and headbutting the wall and all that sort of thing and kicking the door on the way out and but for me with the fit that we had with the group of players we had no we needed to do it that particular way and it proved to be reasonably effective yeah no i i completely agree and like obviously with with the teaching thing now and i'm going to bring it like fast forward say to the present now like obviously growing growing up when when we were growing up a lot were never we never would have talked about mental health and obviously now there's a, obviously a huge interest in people's mental health kids mental health be it obviously everything was going on with covid just it's a lot more publicized now when people have mental health but the thing is people are still struggling to open up and there's still there's still that male mentality. They're, they're embarrassed to, to show their vulnerability. And you being a teacher and, and stuff like that, would you find kids nowadays are even worse off opening up? Or would they sit, like, I don't mean worse off, that they're still the same uh, about showing that vulnerability or would you be more open to speaking about it? No, the, it is improved. The problem with it is, is that it's, it was at such a low level beforehand that improvement doesn't really mean an awful lot in this case because with your particular vintage, your group, there would have been little or nothing of that. Like, I mean, your the mental health of your group and the mental health of you when you were 10, 11, 12, 
I mean, my input into that was indirect. Like it, I, I wasn't able to directly do it because I didn't have the qualifications or I didn't have the know-how or I didn't really understand it. So all I could do was, or all we could do when we were managing the team, the fellas with me were, was set up a good team, train regularly, have good standards, good preparation, be well organized and make the, the team a happy team, whether they're winning or losing, but have a good setup where fellas get on. And that in a way, indirectly, that helps with mental health because by you, Ted and Davey and Philly mixing with Owen Doran and Alan Hubbard and these guys and Elliot, that was good for you guys to see a different, because they were a different type of kid, you know, yeah. not, not, not vastly different, but they came from a different background and a different way of looking at things. And that was good. And that sort of stuff helped um but as regards directly uh i couldn't really do an awful i didn't really know an awful lot about it um it is better now and yeah i mean there today i just got an email from the department talking about the focus on mental health and well-being is what they're calling it in primary yeah. school you know and sphe it's part of the sphe curriculum social personal health education so it's coming up on the radar the only thing about it is is that it's Still, it's a long way from where it should be. And sadly, it took something like this, this COVID situation to really put the press on to get people to, to start putting into schools properly. Because I think people realise at some stage in the last couple of years that those things like being in school with your friends, you know, uh, being out in the schoolyard and um, being active um, forming friendships with people, all the stuff that you do in a football team, that was, and that, that can happen in school. Those things are really, really important. And when, you, when people can't have access to that, when kids can't have those relationships, when they can't have that structure, it's very detrimental for them. The sad thing about it is, is that like, without making myself out to be some sort of a hero, I, like, I don't know how many times I've done articles with people in the media or on the radio, TV, newspaper, where I've spoken about how important for schools that that stuff went on. And I said this 10 years ago, so yeah. I'm trying to make out now that I'm, I'm some sort of a prophet or something, but I mean, the head of the curve. I, I just thought it, yeah, I just thought it was really, really important. And all the time, the same, you get the same answers from inspectors and people in the department. Well, at the end of the day, like, you know, this is a results business. Like, it's all about people achieving high standards in education and getting to college and all this sort of thing. And I was sort of saying, look, forget about the 600 points in the leave insert. Like, that's some people are going to get that. And that is great. I mean, lovely thing to say. But ultimately, there are other things that happen in education. The same happens in teams that are really, really important and that have life changing effects mm. um, on people and that will last with them for way beyond what they learn in a history book or a geography book or, or a maths book. They will, there, there are other things, non-tangible stuff, like stuff that you can't... Build them relationships, like, and, and that trust and being able to obviously speak to people. Correct. Like, I'm noticing lately, like, obviously with everything that I'm doing, be it with the podcast or the, the mental health support group, is the importance of opening up and speaking and being honest with people and letting people know when you're struggling. Yeah. And like I think there, there's still that stigma attached to it, unfortunately. Uh, when it comes to saying, "Oh, I'm struggling," and I know, like a couple of years ago, if, if we any of the lads said, "Oh, we we were struggling with our mental health," you'd be laughed at, or you'd be like, "Right, let's go for a point," or "Let's let's go out." And that's that's yeah. the mentality that people, not just in in Dublin but in Ireland, had. Like, yeah, 
when it, when it comes to mental health it was like right forget about what's going on let's go out and let's go out for like a day or two like do you know what i mean and that's the thing that's what i'm talking about with indirect stuff like they're, they're not that's not direct indirectly it probably helps in some way if fellas go out and they forget about their troubles for a while and have a few beers and have a laugh with the lads and they're not actually not if that certainly does help because you're being socially connected with other people mm. and you're getting a distraction and you know they, they do help but you're right it's not um that's the that's about the only if you if you speak to a lot of people of your vintage that's their way of getting somebody to get get them out of a hole is bring them on the piss you know what i mean and the thing about it is is that like i never drank in my life i don't have any problem with people drinking loads or drinking none it's, i'm not a I don't that's not but i suppose um there has to be more to life than just using alcohol as a way of a release of solving, yeah and getting on with people i mean surely to god you know people could have a conversation with people and have uh, relationships develop connections with people without centering on that i don't have a problem with it but it's just it seems to be central for a long long time that you have to have that um to sort of be part of the gang or to get in with people wherever and for me that's well, i think that's changing now though to be fair yeah. i think yeah. people because people obviously with covid and that's it. You've had no choice because just the pubs have been open. You haven't been able to get out. You go out and and do whatever you want, like go out for your denoy clubs and stuff, into Copperfish Jacks or wherever you you were going. Like, um, so people are obviously interacting more when it comes to just getting out and walking, getting some exercise, and I think interacting that way, going for coffees, and I think that's the way forward that people need to do. Obviously, I agree with you. You're always going to need that release like whether it's going out and having a few drinks with the lads or with the partner or whatever. But I think the most important thing is obviously opening up and speaking. Um, another question then for you is, do you find obviously with COVID now and, and the kids going back into school that the, their anxiety levels are a lot higher because they haven't been able to interact for like the last year and a half? Like, Yeah, it's funny you should say that because only today I was speaking to a principal of a school not far from my school. Um. Uh, a lovely lady, I'd never met her before, but she a big GA supporter and was ringing me about something else and we started talking about it. She's in a bigger school than mine and she was saying, you know, yeah, sh she's noticed that a lot. Um, what would you call it? It's hard to put your finger on it. Uh, kids just being what I would call off. Mm. Just not right. I mean, what does that mean? Um what are the specific indicators like what what are they doing differently i can't really tell you it's just one of those things you just know that this has had a bad effect a poor like a detrimental effect on on kids and she was just saying like you know we can't afford to be closing schools anymore you know closing down even classrooms disastrous because of a covid case that sort of thing and straight away you'll have the people with the about you know the in the hse talking about containing the virus and not letting it spread and all sort of thing but like for me a huge disappointment in this this two-year block now it's nearly well what is it a year and three quarter or a year and a half or something whatever it is i can't understand if we have more knowledge more extensive knowledge of mental health and well-being and all the things you're talking about there and the fact that we've said i've said it's more in schools now it's more on the radar all that sort of thing it looks like that has been totally ignored by just shutting yeah. down schools and not even opening playgrounds i mean at one stage with the playgrounds closed I know. and then 
you know, straight away we're into this whole thing about you'll have people in a few years' time saying, oh, the obesity e epidemic and it's cost us a fortune, all that sort of thing. Yeah, but like, what did you do? You closed the playgrounds. You, you didn't want people out on the pitch. You had to walk. You, had to, you, you couldn't even, like, you couldn't even walk around with your friends. Their kids couldn't go around with your friends. It was crazy sort of stuff. So I am disappointed with that side of things. And I'm, and I'm aware of what happened. I mean, it was March the 12th. So I won't forget it, the day that the school closed and everything shut down. And Grant, okay, three, four, five, six, eight, ten weeks. Yeah, I accept that because people were afraid, and you know, people died. It's terribly sad. I, I know all that stuff, but the thing about it is, is that this is all to do with a proportionate risk. And mm -hmm. like, if you if you think of it, like there is a risk involved, but there is a risk involved in every part of life. You guys went up and trained in a pitch in Poppetry Park, and every day you were training up there. There was glass on the on the ground. There was syringes. Those syringes would have had blood in them sometimes, possibly from somebody who had HIV. I mean, you could have fallen, cut on your knee, infected with that. You know, these things are there is risk involved in all parts of life. We don't try to think about them too often, or we'd never do anything. I think we just went too far, and I'm seeing the effects in the school. I won't say I don't want to. I suppose be alarmist in my own school and have parents uh in a few months time or whenever this is there <laughs> saying oh geez he's saying that our schoolers you know our, my, maybe that's my kid he's talking about i'm just saying in general i think we need to highlight it though and the importance is the parents do understand what's going yeah. on and what they kind of need to do around it yeah well it, it is it is important as long as they don't feel that they're the only school because yeah. as i said i only spoke it's all over the place today. it's everywhere I spoke to somebody at two o'clock today and it's now what half eight or nine o'clock in the evening and at two o'clock today we had the same sort of conversation about kids not being and this is not one kid who sadly their parents are, are separating or there's a bereavement or whatever this is a general sort of a go into a classroom and the kids are off you know they're not you know they're afraid to interact like yeah and and I remember one of the the girls a very very good teacher in my school was saying to me um, last year when we came back in we came back the schools were closed in January and February this year when I say last year as in the last school yeah. year and we came back in the middle of March and we decided to to split um, we we have mixed classes out in the school so you have junior infants and senior infants together and you have first and second together you have third and fourth together fifth and sixth together so we had the infants um usually are together junior and senior but we decided to split them for a few weeks and move staff around so that you would just have a class of junior infants and they would get intensive treatment <laughs> intensive treatment sounds like some sort of medical procedure but i mean they were getting you know a lot of good teaching and, and like you know specific to their age level and um the the girl involved a very good infant teacher and she took them and she said to me yeah, they're getting on okay, but like they're just a little bit sort of like quiet, you know. And, and of course, straight away people say, "Well, this is not what you want." Like you don't want them saying, it, but like no, quiet as in they were withdrawn, maybe a little bit. And it did come out of their shell. Probably had no choice with her because she wouldn't tolerate it for too long. Them being too quiet, she, she'd be she'd be putting them into gear very quick. But like, yeah, that was a real example of that uh, where. Some of the classes, I feel sorry for the younger classes. Like if you take take a take a, a kid in first class this year now, this September, in senior infants, he's lost two and a half months of his teaching. 
and yeah. before he's lost four months, March, basically, April, May and June. So those kids, that's a half, six months. I mean, the school year is technically 183 days. I mean, they've nearly lost a year of teaching, you know, so it's doing a lot of damage. And this is not about their scores. I don't really care about the scores. She's, I suppose, I'll get into trouble now with the parents again after hearing me saying about this. But like the scores are reasonably important, but ultimately it, it's their approach to school, how they interact with their peers, um, relationships they're forming. And it just, everything is happening at a slower pace now. Everything yeah. is more guarded and it's just not as nice as it was. This is not, in, is not solely down in my school. This is across the board with all these schools. And I know why all these things were brought in, but I think that we, and maybe in hindsight, we were proven wrong. Maybe there'd be another problem now soon. And, you know, we'll have to be more lockdowns or whatever. But I just think in general, there's such a negative, there's so many negatives associated with the idea of that closing schools in particular. You, 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 you've you come from a disadvantaged area, Ted, yourself. And one of the things I'm sure you'd remember is, even if times were tough, you love the idea, or most of you would love the idea of going to school because, like, you you were actually okay, but there would have been kids that you knew of your age, of your time, that were in really bad backgrounds. Like you, you, yeah. you, you were you were good, and a number of the other fellas, thankfully, were grand. But there were fellas living near you in the block of flats that you were in, and they were under severe pressure. And if you took school away from them the one thing they had they, maybe they didn't like it and they didn't like being pushed too hard and having to learn too much it was an escape for them correct and they had structure and routine and the yeah. teacher in general would sort of nearly be the same every day it was a bit i suppose like me hopefully i was with you you knew what you were getting every time you came up i wasn't yeah. to be you know going up and down flipping and going mad and then being great form and then psychopath it was just generally like the same sort of routine all the time and that's what humans crave like this you know the bell goes you have your break you go out to the yard you come in you do your maths you then you have you have you have your english and you have big break and you maybe play football then you have pe and you take away all of that and it does a lot of damage but particularly in disadvantage i mean i'm talking about my school and thankfully we don't have the same um, difficulties, but I'm t- I came from, I taught in Our Lady Victories in the Ballymun Road. And although it's on the Ballymun Road, you'd have, you would have had a lot of kids from, from difficult backgrounds. A lot of the kids coming from Coltree, Shangan, around your neck of the woods there. And it, it, some of them would have had very tough times of it. And I just think to myself, if these guys were there now, how much damage would be done to those kids? Because yeah. the one thing they had, no matter what, they probably had a single mother trying to look after them with two or three other kids. She was under pressure and, you know, she might have done, she would have done her best in difficult circumstances, but she had the school. At least she had the school. Yeah. From nine until three, she had a break from them and they might have somehow put a bit of discipline on them. And, you know, it was something to work with, but you take that away. I, I just don't, I don't know if the government or if the people involved in Neffet and these crowds, do they really understand? I wonder, are any of them from Ballymun or Finglas or Kulak? I yeah. doubt. Yeah, because the thing about it is, is that if they knew the damage that they were doing, it's grand, they'll say they do, but do you really know what you're doing? Like, Because if you saw those backgrounds, you're, you're going to create a lot of trouble long-term. And I don't know if the kids will ever recover from it. So... That's a very long way. The onus is on us as, as adults and, and as teachers and mentors to the kids then to try and bring them back out of the shell then. Correct. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You have a big responsibility there because you're dealing with a deficit straight away. Like you're, you're it, it wasn't always easy in disadvantaged areas as it was, mm. but now it's, I won't say 10 times worse, but it's a lot worse. That's all I can say. I, I can only imagine what it's been like in at Lady Victories and the Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary in these schools where would have always had a tough time of it. And then these kids to come back who are in difficult backgrounds, haven't had no structure then for, yeah, you know, over, over the last year, I don't know, half the year or something like that. So I, I, I feel that yes, there are, Talking, they're talking about mental health and well-being and all in the Department of Education in the government, but lockdowns aren't really aren't really helping things. I think that's obvious, you know. But they're not they're not helping anyone. Not just kids. They're not helping adults. And I, I know plenty of people myself myself included. I was fortunate enough now. The lockdown for me kind of came at the right time. The first one because it gave me a chance to kind of reset and reevaluate everything that's going on. But as we went into the second and third one, then you, you do struggle because then, like, they took away the sport. There's no sport. Mm-hmm. Like, times where you were off. Now, I was fortunate with work as well, like, because we we literally only took two weeks off initially at the beginning, and then we, we were working. But, again, at reduced hours. But just being people that haven't been back to work yet, like, mm-hmm. in, in a year and a half. Like, and, like, that's not right. Yeah. Like and that's people are really struggling with their mental health. So I think it is important, obviously, to speak. Um, I think we'll we'll move on for, but I think we're gonna we're gonna stick. You might laugh at this. We'll stick with the kind of mental health side of it, and we'll bring you back to your Dublin days. Okay. <laughs> and, and how um, you kind of you came in, onto the Dublin Dublin senior setup. Uh, um, looking back at at a difficult stage where you weren't really winning anything, and I think as people are aware, you were unfortunate not to win an All-Ireland. People would say you're probably the greatest fullback ever not to win one. Um, I know all of us lads and many Mum would say, but as, as Philly said, I think one night in the late late, you've you've numerous All-Irelands in your back pocket, but I don't think, would it, would it be, is it the same as not having your own one? It's funny or you should say that because, it, yeah, it's funny you should say that because at different stages in my, in my life, I would have had very different answers, you know. I suppose in the early on career, starting to play with Dublin, your, your dream was to win All Ireland. I suppose as time wore on, you started to dream about winning just a Leinster because it was hard to win. Yeah, but you were in '95, though, weren't you? Because yeah, of- that's right. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I came in very early, it's only 19, broke my finger. I looked like it was probably going to get a start in the championship, and then I was out for six weeks. And by the time I got back, it was gone. And I, yeah, I, yeah, you were talking about mental health. That that like a, a cast a serious shadow over me for a while because when you were losing those other years after that, you were sort of thinking, well, I had the chance and I could have like I was on my way to doing that. Having said that, who's to know? Like, I mean, in the first round, if I had a, played poorly and I got dropped off the team, would I have ever come back? I don't know. Who's to? I suppose, regardless of the of the ifs and buts. As I went along, I was delighted to win the Leinsters. I was we, we lost the All Ireland semi final two thousand two to Armagh. Yeah, the closest we came. Probably could have won that. Should have won it, and more than likely could have taken Kerry in the final because they were iffy. Armagh beat them, and yeah. there were there was there was a little bit of I'd say Kerry at the time. There was a little bit of a soft spot there. Tyrone exposed it as well. Like there was just. There was you, you could get to them. Um, they weren't. They were a fine team. 
And and I suppose at that stage you look back and as as the years go on, you start saying you're, you know you're not going to win anything or you're not going to win in All Ireland, and that's devastating. But then, I suppose, funnily enough, you start to cop on. Then you start appreciating what you have and what you've won and how well you've done because, um, like I'm uh, the coach for the Tipperary footballers. I manage the Tipperary twenties footballers and I coach the Tipperary seniors and. One of the lads involved with this year um, is Declan Brown, who will be a legend of Tipperary football. Uh, I think any any GAA player would know who he is. One of the best yeah. fours probably to play, like, and not to win something like. Not to, you're talking about not winning all Ireland. This fella hasn't won a monster championship. I mean, yeah. like, one of the best players I would have ever played with. Didn't play with him much. We were on the international rules with me in 2003, and we would have done played railway cups against each other and yeah, little bits and pieces. And I would have got to know him. I suppose part of it, we, mother being from Tipperary, um, always had a link with Tipperary anyway, and were, would have been chatty with him. And then we he had a, he had the same sort of groin injury as me. We got chatting in 2005 or six or something. I think it was, and we always kept in touch. But that brings me like straight away with him. I mean, he was a class above the majority of Dublin players. And that sounds very cocky, um, in, considering those fellas are going around with bags of all Ireland medals. But I'll be honest with you, um, very few of them will get near him. So, no. you know, what do, does that mean then that he's a failure? I mean, I don't think so. One of the greatest players ever played for his county, one of the best players in the country at his peak. Um, I don't see that. I mean... Do you equate medals with uh, success? I'm not so sure. The way I am as a person and the way I've developed probably would have less interest now in medals and more interest in what type of person you are. And that sounds very mental health, well-being-y sort of, and all that sort of stuff and spiritual and all. But like, I do think that every player who plays at a high level wants more. That's the nature of People do that in all parts of their life. They want, they have something and they want more. At the moment, yeah. I have a, a red Lexus uh, sports car and I was looking around the last while. It's 2016. It's only got 35,000 miles and I was sort of saying, I wouldn't mind getting a, a, a newer one of them. Like The thing about it is, is that there's nothing wrong with what it is at the moment. It's a gorgeous car. The thing about it is, you're human. You want something else. You see something else. Something else catches your eye. And same with all ireland stephen mcdonald be a good friend of mine over the years from armagh he won one all ireland he's disgusted that tyrone won a few and he only has one yeah and he won and then tyrone are you know they won the all ireland there last week but the vintage of uh mulligan and stephen o'neill and all these guys they're raging that they didn't win another couple but they had three like so yeah the person who has three wants four the person who has five wants six person who has zero wants one and the fellow who has one wants two so you have the Dublin lads now who have some of them have eight and yeah and and ultimately what I would say is when I won the Leinster which was the big deal for me 2002 you guys were only under whatever 16 or 15 or whatever it was and you wouldn't have even really copped it like we had lost three Leinster finals in a row and we would have been at the games as well because you are, yeah. that's one of, that was one of the perks, obviously, you, of you being our manager. We used to always get tickets for, yeah. for the alley. <laughs> I, I remember, um, I remember saying if we could just win one Leicester, a Leicester championship at the time was a big deal. Like, yeah, was, you had to probably beat Mead and or Kildare. 
and it was a huge deal. Standard of Leinster at the time was very high, um, and a Leinster medal was a was probably a kin, not far off, an All Ireland medal. That's that's the way. Back, it, back in the day, it's a huge deal. We lost three Leinster finals in a row, and I remember thinking to myself when we lost the 2001 one after having a load of chances and playing really still there, wasn't it? Yeah. Kildare. Oh, that was Mead. Kildare was 2000. Same with that. But I mean, particularly Mead, because it was three in a row we'd lost. And the third one, I felt we'd thrown away because we had a lot of possession and couldn't score. I remember thinking to myself, maybe I'm just not going to win anything. I mean, we hadn't won a National League. We'd lost the National League final in 1999 to Cork, down in Cork. We'd won a couple of Oberon Cups and that sort of stuff, which was considered very, very little. And I'd won a couple of small things with kick We won a 21 championship, which was lovely. Um, but but realistically, you'd won little or nothing. And I remember thinking to myself, it dawned on me, maybe we're just not going to, maybe I'm just not going to win anything here, you know? Mm. And I said, if I could just win, if we could just, I remember being down at a Lady of Victories the week of the Leinster final in 2002, it's getting ready for, I was just messing around in the classroom. School was closed. This was the middle of July. And I used to go down there. I had the keys of the place. And I used to go down there and sort of pass a bit of time. And it'd take me around three weeks to clean out my classroom because I'd be so slow. You know, I sort of just drift around. And then I'd be on the phone. And then I'd go off and do something else and go to the autobahn for me dinner. And then I'd come back. And I just used it to pass the time because it was just one of those people I liked. It was where I went to school myself. And I had an affinity with the place. And I remember cleaning up at one stage, it was a Wednesday or a Thursday, and thinking to myself, thinking about us trying to beat Kildare, and then thinking, geez, imagine if we lose this. That's four Leinster finals in a row. And you were captain at this stage as well, weren't you? And, uh, no, it was 2005 I was captain, but I was, I suppose I would I would have been probably the vice captain or whatever it was at the time, or I would have been, I think Coleman Goggins was captain in 2002, uh, but... Um, I would have been probably one of the I would have been one of the leaders I suppose and seen as you know one of the, the head guys head honchos and uh, I did think to myself jeez like imagine losing four and then I just had to whatever I was doing I, I got stuck into it. I said don't I can't think like that because if you start thinking like that you flip it and just blow your brain you know and then I, but I did think to myself for a few seconds well if we could just win one I'd be happy like if that was the end of my career but we just had one Leinster and of course we did win and you know what? It was absolutely fantastic. But you know what as well? It didn't change anything. Do you know, like life goes on. Um, and I remember the following day, TV3 came to my house, my ma's house. You know my ma's house, Ted, in Willow Park there. And it was Joanne Cantwell, actually. Who was, she's now on the Sunday game. Um, and I remember she called, I remember she called up to, to do an interview with me the day after. And I think I might have had the cup with me. And uh like it was, you were on a high, you know, you were absolutely like ecstatic and uh, it was, you know, everything was great. And my mother was saying to me, oh God, like at least, I mean, she's at least, I think she said something crazy, like, well, at least if I die now, at least you won. He's won in, in Crow Park. How many times we, she'd come out of Crow Park and Leinster final day and we were beaten and the music would be playing at the end, that horrible music that, it's lovely when you're winning, but when you yeah. lose, hear that music, it go off. Oh, many awesome. times your dad would be ecstatic walking out because you need after, <laughs> after winning. Yeah. And I remember my mother saying, well, at least now, Patrick, she always called me Patrick. At least now, Patrick, you won that. Now I can, I could, I can die now anyway. 
something along those lines. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, oh, you're right, like that's, I feel the same myself, like that's how much it meant. But in hindsight, it was, it's a game and it's a very important game for a lot of people. And it's lovely to have such memories and all that sort of thing. But ultimately, there has to be more to life than that. And I, I suppose the pleasure I got out of it, the thing, the thing I miss when I finished playing, which I thankfully still had in Ballymore when I went back and played. So I threw, I threw me a whole lot in with Ballymore, as you would have seen. Mm. You were just coming on the scene at that stage when I was finishing up with Dublin and then I got totally committed to Kickham's. And, but, but, when, but what you eventually miss be it when you finish with Dublin or finish with Kickham's is you miss the dress room, you know. I still used to go into the dress room in Kickham's, the one you know in Ballymun, and I'd be coaching the lads, which was the second team now. Um, you, 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 the fellas you, you don't like, all the younger lads. And uh, No, it's not me. I think we all, we all get on now, but I think at one stage, I think, who was it? Was it Cur Paul Curran or Paddy Carr brought them in? Yeah, it was one of them. So then it was a mixture. I think initially it was uh, a, a blending uh, in period between the two teams. <laughs> but um, I remember Christoph, as you know, and Brian O'Leary, they'd be sort of cleaning up the place. I'd be giving them a hand and then I'd say, listen, I'm just running in here and going to have a shower. And I'm sure they were wondering, what's the story there? Like, I mean, does this fellow not have a shower at home or just wants to avoid paying the water charges or something at home, whatever it was. <laughs> but I suppose part of, part of it was Handiness sake, you you know, you're clean and you go home then and jump, you know, if it was nighttime, jump, you can watch a TV and you take relax. But part of it was to be standing there still, that brought you back. And oh, there's some stories from them dress rooms that I will never like, but they can't be, can't be told. They can't be, they, they have fellas like Ducey. And that's the, who was going to say, Darren Ducey and, and Stephen Condo. <laughs> they can't ever be retold. It have to be after the nine pm watershed. It'll have to be. It'll be. It'll be borderline criminal sort of stuff. It'll have to be explicit. Go <laughs> <laughs> You're telling stories about Darren Ducey and, and Condo. Jesus. The thing <laughs> is, you do miss. That's that's amazing. What you and, and I went back for years afterwards. With that's like having a shower there and standing there because it brought you back to like it made you feel like you were back where you were sort of felt at yeah. home and you felt sort of part of a family and whatever. And I mean, the showers in Giggles, as you know, they wouldn't be the, often the cleanest of places and that sort of thing, but there was just something about the smell and the look of the place and all that. It wasn't very pretty. And at what point, it, all you could think of was associations with positive stuff, like and yeah. the victories and the crack you had and the laugh and, that sort of thing and it, that that was that was your sort of home and you always veered back towards and it, and it was a number of years before i really found myself getting away from it because i suppose once i got involved with dcu and Tipperary, that sort of that sort of cleared that out but i did you come back to valley moon paddy huh will you come back to valley moon uh, i don't know just, they wouldn't want me back at this stage they have to move on they have to get new fresh blood i'm i'm burnt out at this stage but that's, <laughs> that's what it is like it's um it's a Come back to you. It's a very long-winded answer to what you asked about all Ireland and stuff like that. But yeah. ultimately, for me, I have whatever three or four Leinster medals, and they're lovely. I have an All-Star, um, played for Ireland in international rules in Australia and in Ireland. Loved that. Really enjoyed that. Won a Rabbit Cup. Was captain of the Rabbit Cup. That was a big honour. Very few people will be at those games, but it was a huge deal for me. I liked that. Loads of stuff I got out. I got 
obviously individual awards and um, sports star of the week and all that sort of thing, like grand. Ultimately, it was the friendships you had, the laugh you had. I, mean, I went to the Ballymun match on Friday night, sitting between Darren Ducey and Ian Robertson. You know, two, three, two fellas you soldier with the whole time. We didn't win an awful lot. Um, but you did, you have a friendship with them for good, like for, for life. And, uh, you know, that means an awful lot. And would it be nicer if you had seven or eight All-Ireland medals and seven or eight Dublin Senior Championships? Yeah, it would be nicer. But would it be a game changer? No. It's ultimately, um, it's just a selfish thing. You're always looking for more all the time. But for me, when I look back, the, the, the glowing memories are challenge games down the country when somebody kicked somebody up the rear end or flipped oh, yeah. off or whenever somebody was doing, you know, you were coming back. Uh, I, I'm sure you remember the infamous time we were coming back from West Mead when Mick Mara drove the bus and we, we went through a village and uh, we were at a chipper and I decided to get all these guys chips and somebody decided to have a wee uh, against the wall, which turned out to be the door of somebody's house. <laughs> and that person would think was angry when they came out and we had to get into the bus very quick and just head off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, those sort of things are, you know, they bring a bigger smile than anything else. Um, and that's not me being wishy-washy or soft or like that. That's genuinely heartfelt. Like they're the things you don't forget. And um, that would mean, no, I'm not going to say it, it means more, it, they're equal. They're equal. The winning was lovely and would have liked to win more, but the, that's other stuff. Uh, the friendships and the laugh, and even the trips to Portugal and all with the senior team. Uh, I mean, it was just when you look back on it, like it's just very, very funny. I, I think I was uh, the first one of them, I think it was about 16 or 17 going. Yeah. And ah, oh. <laughs> some experience for somebody to go a 16, 17 year old to go over there and train in the heat in Portugal. And then go out at nighttime, go out for food in a restaurant, and then go out in the nightclub and have the crack and all. It must have been, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I did years later because I brought that second team back three times. Yeah. Each time it was for one and one reason only, it was to make them bond and to make. And I think that's what we're doing. Or so I always remember, because um, yourself, Robbo, Ducey, and all. And I think I was actually in a room with Ducey as well. And like, <laughs> the, the memory, you could, the memories are still vivid there, like uh, of that week. And I remember we had Robbie Shortall and, and Robbo, like, and we had, I think, Decky Sheen was manager. And he made, at the start of the week, he made two teams, and that was it. Yeah, for yeah we were killing each other then every yeah. day. Yeah. And then we yeah. come to have a, it was a sing song or something, and Robbo and, and Rob Shortall had to make friends or something yes. at the end or something. There was some sort of a, a big, massive man hug or something going on or something at the end. It was, don't, yeah. I mean, I was only talking to Ducey about that and, and Robbo on Friday night in Parnell Park during the game when we were under pressure and it looked like we were going to lose and got totally distracted talking about that. And I was saying, my avoid memory that, and you were, you were only 16 or 17, like Condo and me used to always, like, we got on well, but we used to have the odd disagreement. Right. Well, I, I remember he was going around late, like, going in very heavy on a few used guys. And of course, used guys were much younger. And secondly, used guys were like, said I sons or brothers to me. So I had a, a double thing there. And but the thing for us that we didn't, we always like reacted to it. Like I think most of the time we didn't like. Well, he burst a couple of used guys and I had enough. I was just saying to him a couple of times, relax. And he told me to 
well, we're on the, we're on the, you're, you're on a podcast. So he told me to go away. That's all I was saying. I can't say any more. <laughs> but um, I said, right, enough is enough. And somebody gave a hand pass at one stage in a hand passing game. And he caught it, went to give a hand pass back. No, he gave, sorry, he the ball. He gave a hand pass, went to get it back. I went to, when he went, when he hand passed over my head, he thought he was sort of going to go around me and I wasn't going to do anything. But but the minute he hand passed over my head, I just went straight through him, just milled him out over the shoulder and absolutely (laughs) poleaxed him. Like, and he remember him lying on the ground looking up at me saying, what the, what's that? And I was saying, I remember shouting down on him. I told, like, cut out Bully and the young fellas, you're jumping on the young, and then he started, you know, jumping up and we were grabbing each other and fighting and all. Anyway, I, the funny thing about it is, is that overall, all you think of though is like the, the how funny it was, and you know, even if you think, I mean, um, I brought those the, the the second team back three times, and what the first time they brought them back was to the same place that the seniors were in Browns in yeah in. Um, I give you a funny story. I was in a room, I think, with with Ducey and Emmett Lee. I think maybe Courier as well was him. So Decky, you kind of mixed them up. I remember one of the nights, like obviously the older lads would be great grand. Sheena's gone to bed and we'll sneak out here or wherever. Like, so I think me and Courier were in bed asleep or like half 11, 12 o'clock or wherever it was, like after being up playing pool. I remember at three o'clock next thing I know, just someone climbing through the window on top of the bed. No, you got the fright me life. And I think you know who this fella's just there sniggering at you, like, throw it out naming names. <laughs> like, so it was like stuff like that you can always remember and you think back fondly, like, and like, no matter, but no matter what happened, even no matter how many rows we all had on the pitch, and we were all kids and we'd still think we'd take them and stuff like that. But I think when it came to a match situation, no matter if, if someone tried to start as you were the first one in, the back was open. Yeah, I think that was that was the nature of it. Like, yeah, there was a bit of animosity here or there, but overall, it was a very strong bond. I mean, you're talking about funny stories, like straight away when I think of that, we, we were in chalets over there. Do you remember, remember we were all in those chalets? Yeah. I think it was the last, <laughs> I think it was the last day we were there. It was, we were meant to be cleaning out our room, whatever. I remember taking coming out with my bag and I opened the front door and Deucey was standing outside smoking, of course, smoking a, a cigarette <laughs> after being like, he didn't even know where he was. He was all after coming in. I was after coming home very early, didn't drink, whatever. But you guys were all after being out. I think he just came in at five, six, seven in the morning. And we were up at 10 or something like that. I don't know what it was. Something reasonably early for, to get the, to get the, to get back for the, to the airport. And I remember bringing out my bag and standing outside the, the door of our chalet, talking to him. And he was all over the shop smoking this fag. <laughs> Just out of nowhere then. Like, I don't know where this came from. <laughs> An egg just splattered all over. <laughs> just <laughs> missed his head. <laughs> I think it was Philly McMahon. I think it was him, but couldn't be 100% sure. There was three or four eggs thrown. <laughs> and then... I said nothing. I just took me back and I headed off. I remember we got on the plane. I remember thinking on the plane, she, I wonder what was going on there. And um, around a week later, we were at training Declan Sheen's out, lads. I'm going to have to collect 10 euro off because there's a cleaning charge for, for eggs splattered. <laughs> eggs smashed all over the wall. I remember, Jesus Christ. Like that was, and no one owned up who it was. I'm fairly sure it was Philly because it, 
it sounded like it could be something he'd do. But anyway, God. I think as well, that was it the first first year we went, and I think uh, they they treated us like royalty. We thought you we were this big team coming over, GAA team coming over to play, and I think. Derry City were there at the same That's time. Right, yeah. With, and I think Stephen Kenny was managing them. I think he was manager. I think I was talking to him sitting on the side of the yeah. pool one day. So Stephen Kenny was managing them and he had your man McCourt, Paddy McCourt playing for him as well at the time. And and obviously these boys were rare professional footballers at the time as well. Like and and you see them training and they're they're chilling out and they're doing the recovery sessions and you had us little takes running around the place. Like well, the funny about it was was that Declan Sheen had a swimming coach with us and he was getting us to do recovery in the pool. So yeah. we're in this tomb and we remember we used to walk through that pool that it was freezing cold at night yeah. in the evening. Like the, Portugal was a lovely country and lovely and warm, but in the nighttime the water would be freezing and you'd have to walk through it. And um, the funny thing about it was, I was only thinking of Stephen Kenny last week when I was watching that Ireland match. I remember talking to him and he couldn't get half the Derry City fellas to walk through the water. And a lot of us were, I think all of us did it. And to be honest, yeah. I hated the water. I'd never had any interest in the water. Couldn't you even couldn't swim, though. Couldn't you do I think the like, Ducey and all used to sack you over. Yeah, I couldn't swim. The thing about it was, though, you you wouldn't dare. You didn't want to say, oh, God, I'm not going to do that. Because the stick you'd get and say, you'd say, oh, you win bag and all that sort of thing. So you just went and did it. And I remember talking to him afterwards. And he said, how, how did you get all, how are you all doing that? And I said, well, you can't. You, you just have to do it. But like. I can't get half these guys to do it. They're actually semi-professional. They're getting, well, paid very little, but they're still getting paid. And they won't do it. They just won't do it. But, like, again, that was another thing. You had a bit of wildness in fellas. And, of course, nobody wants to be the person to say that they were too soft or too weak or whatever. Like, so you just, it was it was peer pressure, you know. But, um, no, they were, they were great times. And, again, I can tell you so much of that stuff. I can tell you bits and pieces of Crow Park matches and big days and all and, Oh, I wouldn't take it back. I mean, my mother and father alone for the for the joy it gave them. It was lovely. Like they were GA people and they were so proud and that sort of thing. So I'm delighted for that. But uh, but my fondest memories are probably and same with Dublin. We went on trips to we went to Spain one year uh, with Tommy Carr, the manager, and um some a bit of great bit of a laugh over there as well. And then down the country lots of times the hotels and overnight stays and all like we had great that's what you remember more than the the, mm. the, the victories you know so i uh, have two more questions and then, then we'll finish up so yeah. and, and the questions is the bet like again best player you've ever played with and the best player you've played against and i know from watching games to play against there's been some some um high, highly talented forwards that you've married throughout, throughout the years so yeah I mean, there's a range of them there. And every time I do this, I always feel guilty because I think of somebody an hour later and say, how do I not mention him? Because he was so good. But off the top of my head, like, I mean, I in the old style of football season, old, sorry, old style football format, full forwards were always the best players in the forward line. Like they were target men because they were kicking the ball in a lot of the time. So therefore you wanted to have your best man in front of the goals. So I suppose straight off the top of my head, Graham Gerrity stands out like serious player, um, serious athlete, uh, great football brain as well, pace, power. Oh. And he had that tenacity as well. That little... yeah, yeah, he's got a nastiness in him as well. And he, you know, ah, he would have fit him well with Buddy Moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he would have. <laughs> 
he might he might have pushed us over the edge. We were bad enough as it was. If we had him, we would have went. Uh, well, we would have won. We would have won three or four senior championships. I, I can safely say that. We we were a little bit short up front over the years, at Ballymun, and he would have got us over the line in the in the late nineties. A great player. Um, for, I mean, Niall Sheridan from Longford. People would always give him stick. Um, you mightn't even remember him because Longford weren't a successful county, but. A big stocky guy, um, loads of football, big sort of a, a powerful man. He was a great player. Um, Stephen McDonald from Armagh, completely different, a whippet, like but really fast and great in the air, great hands, and very good finisher. I ended up doing a bit of coaching with him up in the Burren in County Down. Stephen yeah. was forwards coach, and uh Really nice guy, decent bloke, um, really good footballer, tough as well. Like um, Declan Brown, I have to have to mention him. Tipperary, great player. Um, you know, both both feet, great fit off the ground as well. Uh, like low low center of gravity, great turn, kick a ball over him sixty yards, not a bother. Like great great player. Um, always like Darrow Canada from Kerry. He wasn't. Given the same kudos as the other fellas, but I, 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 I always had tough battles with him. I thought he was a very stylish footballer, like um, Stephen McDonald up north, Stephen O'Neill from Tyrone, great player. Um, Mulligan was a good player, Tyrone. Um, Donny Gall had a fella called Brendan the Benny, full forward. Um, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, good player. Porrick Joyce from Galway, serious player, full forward, serious, serious player. Very grumpy fella. Didn't like if he got the better of him. <laughs> always blamed the referee all the time. When you, when he, you were always fouling him, of course, when you beat him to the ball. But in fairness to him, he was a great player. He was, I have to say, most of the time he'd be doing well to get near the ball when he, when he was playing. He's a great finisher as well. Um, they were the fellas. Um, I suppose I both played with some of them and against them because some yeah. of them were international rules. Um, and, and again, there's probably another 10 that I'm, I'm forgetting about right now. I have to go through each county and think about them. Um, but some de- some of them fellas were 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 class acts. Like uh, Desi Dolan from Westmead was another great player. He's on the Sunday game now all the time. Yeah. And, uh, he was he was a great player. Very very um, good forward, pacey and stylish as well. Good finisher. Yeah, great player. So yeah, had an assortment, and you usually ended up marking him because sadly, you were just. That was the nature of the beast. They put in their best player full forward. And, and another unfortunate thing was, that, like, I came a little bit too early because later on in the, the game changed around the mid, late 2000s, 2008, 2009, they started, people started getting very defensive, started bringing in sweepers. Yeah. When you were marking Graham Garrity, there was nobody there. Like, you one-on-one on one. On one if he destroyed you. There wasn't any... Cavalry coming over the hill, aren't like there was nobody to help you. You were just at half time. If he was destroying you, the managers start roaring at you. You're not trying hard enough. Come on, what's wrong with you? You know, do something different, or, or punch him harder, or I don't know, do whatever it was. But I mean, there was no idea of a system, or oh, he'll drop back and cover you, and you can play spare man, or I mean, non-existent. You you went out, you beat him. If you were good enough, you beat him. If you weren't good enough, you got destroyed. Well, Paddy, if I think if I remember correctly, you were the one who brought in the sweeper system. The, yeah, the sweeper yeah, yeah. We, we, you started that. Yeah, that's the, the funny thing about it was that happened by, and this comes back to what I was talking about with bridges, but we had to adapt to things. And 
one of the things that I sort of copped after a long time was that we never really had enough good forwards in the team. And that's no disrespect to, obviously, you were a very strong forward. And um, we would have had Hubby sometimes playing as a corner forward, who was more of a back, but he was still a decent fella. And you had Eddie up front with you. But you didn't have six forwards. You had some fellas who were really, they were better as backs. No. So the way I looked at it was, why don't we just take one of them out and drop him back and have seven backs? And that will leave space for you, the likes of you and Eddie up front. And if they follow that fella, it'll leave loads of space. And I think back then, teams didn't know what to do, how, how to cope. Yeah, yeah because you, you get used to doing that sort of stuff and you, you, you play it over and over again. And you just, it's like... Um, it's like a fine wine or something. It just develops with age. Like after a while, you sort of get to know that. And for us, for your team, it would have been Davy Bourne or Gizmo. Yeah. Remember Gizmo, Gary Dyden. He was very, very good as he had a brain for that. The person who was the sweeper had to be a specific type of fella. He had to be clever. He obviously had to be committed and he had to be fit because he was going to be doing a lot of running. But um, Davy Bourne really mastered that later on. Gizmo would have been the first fella to do and he was quite good at it and then Davey took it up another level and the funny thing was the second team, level, like, Pardon? Davey took it to a whole different oh, level. Oh yeah and the, the funny thing was with the second team I sort of did the very same um, with Carl Keeley. Now he would be now considered a, a wing back with the seniors now but I mean for if you ask any of the, the young lads he was wing forward and he, he dropped back. That's what he did and yeah. he, he was he had an engine that he could continuously go up and down. He, so he played as a sweeper. He's an absolute freak. Yeah, he's he's a one in a million sort of fella. He was a he had a Rolls Royce engine, and uh, still, I, well, I hope he still does. I haven't seen him much recently, um, but he would be a very fit fella, and uh, he just fitted into that whole thing. We you needed somebody. We didn't have what you had with your team was if we'd a fella sitting back, usually Davy or Gizmo, and they would sort of stay there. Whereas mm. with the second team, we evolved that. And Carl Keely, his job was to go back and mop up. But then he had to go forward because I didn't want us playing with five forwards against six backs. So we needed him up there. So then he had to attack. But then when the move broke down, he had to go back. So he had to just basically go back and forth continuously for 60 minutes. I mean, no big deal. I mean, no, no, not for him anyway. <laughs> you can see what happened in his VO2 max scores. Like, I mean, he must have, I think his 1K scores were like off the, off the chart. I mean, I think he had a one K score at one stage better than the majority of the Dublin team and he was only 18 years of age. I mean Yeah, no, you are he still is just a freaking age when it comes yeah. to Rome. Um so that just happened by itself. I mean that wasn't um started with Jews guys and then it evolved. But again the funny thing about it was with the sweeper somebody like myself every so often I would have loved to have that with Dublin. Just when you were under severe pressure it would have been nice um, but um, maybe that's what inspired me. I said to myself, I don't want this to be happening with the with, with the Ballymun fellas, what's happening with me, because every so often you will get taken to the cleaners and it was horrible, you know, like Graham Garrity, in fairness, we had some serious battles and um, two of them were Leinster finals. I think one of them, I probably got the better of him and the other one, he got the better of me, but there was always a danger if he got the better of your property that he'd score one seven or one eight and you'd be like basically booed off the pitch, like, and no one would help you. You'd just be, lashed out in the media and everyone say you're just not good enough um whereas every so often if you had a little bit of help you could have just sort of it'd make you feel a little bit more comfortable but um and the other side of things as well is that with that particular Dublin team because we weren't scoring up front 
as much as we should have, that that doubled the pressure because you said to yourself, yeah, I'm Martin Graham Gerty, and yeah, he could destroy me. But also, if he does, we're probably not going to score much the other end. So that's the end of the game. So yeah, horrible way to play. And I mean, the likes of Johnny Cooper and Philly McMahon, these fellas, they, they, they've won plenty and fair play to them. They've played great football on the full back line, but they should be appreciative of the fact that the Paul Mannions of this world and the Bernard Brogans, like what a what an addition to think that, yeah, Tyrone or Armagh or Kerry might score a goal on me here, but I know Paul Mannion and Bernard Brogan are probably going to score two goals and five points, so it doesn't really yeah. make any difference. That's, that's, that's their two different universes you're, you're talking about there. Like one is is living on the edge like, and then the other one is much more comfortable, you know, so. Yeah, well, look, Paddy, we'll finish it up there. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciate you joining me this evening. And I really appreciate you taking the time out and, and help me with this, with this podcast. You have been listening to Ted's Open Mic. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved with the prayer support group, which is meets every week on Zoom, you can email tedsopenmike at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed.